This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A prank is defined as a trick that's intended to be amusing and often to make someone look foolish. Most pranks are conceived and executed for the sole purpose of trying to be funny and are not meant to cause damage or injury. Filling a classroom with balloons, wrapping a roommate's car in plastic, a well-placed whoopee cushion, classic tricks in the arsenal of the harmless joker. While these might represent a lower bar, there have been far more sophisticated hoaxes throughout history. Some funny, some not so much. One evening in 1957, the British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, aired its regularly scheduled and highly respected news program, Panorama. During the rundown of international headlines, viewers were surprised to learn that farmers in Switzerland were having a great season for their spaghetti crops. According to the news piece, a warmer-than-normal winter, coupled with the eradication of the destructive spaghetti beetle, contributed to a stellar yield of the pasta that year. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavor. Many people are often puzzled by the fact that spaghetti is produced at such uniform length. But this is the result of many years of patient endeavor by plant breeders who've succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. The story aired complete with footage of workers harvesting long strands of spaghetti from trees. The joke resulted in thousands of British viewers contacting the network wanting to know where they could get a spaghetti tree for their gardens. In another lighthearted mass prank, in 1996, major newspapers in the U.S. informed readers that the fast food chain Taco Bell had purchased the beloved Liberty Bell. The historic monument, located in Philadelphia, is a popular symbol of American independence and had been under the trusted care of the U.S. National Park Service. The announcement also reported that the company intended to rename the monument. It would now be called the Taco Liberty Bell. The story prompted thousands of angry calls to the Park Service and to the restaurant's corporate headquarters. Others went directly to the news outlets to voice their frustration. The story jumped from the pages of the morning newspapers to the cameras of the national news. Wait until you hear what's happened to one of the most cherished symbols of American freedom. Thousands of callers jammed talk radio stations across the country. Are you guys nuts? What, what, what is our country all about anyway? People? Cash. Commercialism. If, if we had known the Liberty Bell had been for sale, we would have bought it. But what's next? The Constitution? <laughs> <laughs> See, now we didn't know that was for sale. Well, that's a slap in the face, isn't it? The Taco Liberty Bell? Yep. <laughs> but first, the Taco Liberty Bell will go on tour starting here in Atlanta for the Olympics. This is a joke, right? April Fools? I hope. I hope. Admitting that perhaps they had made a slight miscalculation in their attempt to be funny, the Taco Bell Corporation quickly announced that it was all just a joke. No, they did not buy it. No, 
they will not be calling it the Taco Liberty Bell. That is Nightly News for Monday. I'm Tom Brokaw. I'll see you back here. The arguably tasteless prank may have elevated the blood pressure of those who believed it was true, but that was nothing compared to what happened after one of the most well-known hoaxes of all time. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to this episode of True. On the evening of October 30th, 1938, listeners of the CBS radio network were growing concerned over several news bulletins interrupting regular programming. The breaking news initially spoke of a series of explosions on the surface of the planet Mars that was being closely monitored by astronomers back on Earth. We have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Endelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. Shortly after, another report described an object falling from the sky and landing on a farm in New Jersey. When the music program was interrupted yet again, a reporter at the scene explained with increasing distress the events unfolding. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's studying the object while the two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods of fires. There's gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. News reports continued over the following hour, detailing a Martian invasion happening in countries around the world. Apparently, most people listening to the radio that evening didn't hear the announcer's message. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. If people had heard it, perhaps the broadcast would not have caused mass panic and long-lasting psychological trauma. All over the country, people were grabbing what they could and literally running for the hills. Orson Welles would later admit during an interview that the frantic public reaction made him feel a bit regretful. If you think this is an exaggeration, it's only a little while ago that I again ran into some Red Cross people who had been up in the Black Hills of Dakota some five or six weeks after this broadcast persuading the people to leave the mountains and go back home because the Martians really hadn't come. 
All kinds of people reacted in all kinds of ways. For example, John Barrymore, the very famous American actor, this I know to be true, was listening to the broadcast, and although he was a friend of mine, ceased to identify me with the show and believed implicitly that America had fallen to the Martians. And hearing this on his radio, rushed out into his backyard where he kept ten Great Danes in a kennels and released the dogs, giving them their freedom, crying to them as they ran in all directions of the compass, the world has fallen, fend for yourselves. People wanted to know what to do. As a matter of fact, they were phoning us from all over the place, some of them reporting that they'd seen Martians landing in their backyards and asking for advice. And there were others that claimed to have been attacked personally by Martians. The whole experience was extremely intense. I suppose we had it coming to us because, in fact, we weren't as innocent as we meant to be. And I, st I still meet people all over the place, everywhere in the world, who, who've had experiences, bitter or otherwise, as a result of our little experiment in, in broadcasting. While the fictional story of alien invaders may have rattled the nerves of an already tense pre-World War II audience, no one was reported to have been killed or injured. That, unfortunately, can't be said for all practical jokes. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. In August 2012, 44-year-old Randy Lee Tenley decided it would be funny to dress up like the legendary Bigfoot and scare motorists along a busy Montana highway. As it got dark and wearing a military-style camouflage suit called a ghillie, Tenley walked out of the brush along the side of the four-lane road. In his attempt to get the attention of passing drivers, he started wandering closer to the lanes. The full-body suit no doubt would have scared anyone especially at night, even more so perhaps if you're a teenager new to driving. According to police, the overzealous Sasquatch walked a bit too far into the fast lane and was hit by not one, but two cars, both coincidentally driven by teenagers. It appears the pedestrian was well into the driving lane. The first car hit him head on, and a moment later, the second car drove right over him. He was out there in the ghillie suit, uh, attempting to incite a sighting of Bigfoot to make people think they had seen a Sasquatch. Not surprisingly, Tenley did not survive, but his prank will live forever in the memories of those traumatized young drivers and as a candidate for a Darwin Award. Sometimes even the most innocent practical jokes can have deadly consequences. In June 2014, after a late night dip in the pool, a group of teens in West Virginia decided it would be funny to leave their wet underwear on a police car parked nearby. The state trooper, who was off-duty at the time, was not amused by the prank. He put on his police uniform and called his headquarters to place himself back on active duty, 
The frustrated officer's plan was to use all of his police resources to track down the perpetrators of this heinous crime. It didn't take long for him to spot a few teens walking up the driveway of one of their homes. Flashing lights on, the officer stopped the group to question them about the underwear incident. At some point during the questioning, the state trooper decided he would have to teach the group that practical jokes aren't funny. He grabbed 18-year-old Timothy Hill in a headlock, blasted him in the face with pepper spray, clubbed him in the head with his police baton, and finished it off with a couple of bullets to the head and chest. The unarmed teen died at the scene. In an equally tragic prank, again involving underwear, a 58-year-old man in Oklahoma died after his stepson accomplished what few overachieving jokesters ever dare to dream. In 2013, 33-year-old Stepson of the Year Brad Lee Davis managed to execute an atomic wedgie. If you're not familiar with the wedgie, it's the act of pulling someone's underwear up from the back waistband, and a go-to for amateur pranksters and entry-level bullies. The regular wedgie, while always humiliating, can also be quite painful. The atomic wedgie, however, is on a completely different playing field. The atomic status is reached when the waistband successfully goes over the subject's head. Attempting such a feat is dangerous, and can easily go wrong if not performed by a professional. This was the case when it backfired on Bradley Davis that fateful day. On that day, his stepfather wasn't expecting a wedgie, let alone one dubbed the Atomic Wedgie. Why would he? He was a 58-year-old adult, hanging out with his 33-year-old stepson. Still, that didn't stop Mr. Davis from unexpectedly yanking his stepfather's underwear up and over his head. Unfortunately, the Olympian effort resulted in the underwear's elastic waistband slipping around the stepfather's neck. Unable to breathe, the man soon lost consciousness and died shortly after. Bradley Davis was arrested and charged with causing his death. We have a bizarre murder case to tell you about tonight. A man is dead and his stepson is in jail after an atomic wedgie. Police say the stepson pulled his stepfather's underwear over his head. And he is charged with murder and is in jail tonight. Cause due to the, uh, what they're referring to as an atomic wedgie, uh, the gentleman had actually pulled the underwear of Mr. St. Clair up over his head and the elastic band was around his throat. He was later found guilty of first-degree manslaughter and handed a 30-year sentence. Sometimes, in order to carry out a prank, the prankster has to recruit others to assist. The problem with this approach is that the participants may not always be aware of their involvement. Take, for example, the 2012 birth of Prince William's and Kate Middleton's first child. When the Duchess of Cambridge was admitted to the hospital, a veritable lockdown went into effect and no information was getting out. The media was in a frenzy and would have done anything for some news from inside the hospital. And some did. A couple of Australian radio hosts decided they would make a prank phone call to the hospital and do their best impression of Queen Elizabeth. Now Mel, today is a, is a very special day. Yes. Uh, we've been handed a phone number. All right. 
And we have been told that this phone number is the hospital mm. where Kate Middleton is currently staying. Now, I reckon we can maybe get her on the radio tonight. Look, I don't know. I mean, everybody would be trying well, this. Well, this, this is why I thought of a, a plan. You are going to be the queen. This is awesome. I'm going to be Prince Charles. Hello, I'm the queen. Exactly. Numbers going in. Oh, jeez, I hope this happens. Hello, good morning. King Edward 7 Hospital. Oh, hello there. Could I please speak to Kate, please, my granddaughter? Oh, yes. Just hold on. Um... Thank you. Are they putting us through? Much to their surprise, the nurse who answered the call fell for it and put them in touch with Kate Middleton's attending nurse. Good morning, Mum. This is the nurse speaking. How may I help you? Hello. I'm just after my granddaughter, Kate. I want to see how her little tummy bug is going. She's been getting some fluids to rehydrate her because she was quite dehydrated when she came in. Um, but she, she's stable at the moment. The prank call lasted just over two minutes, with the Duchess's attending nurse speaking to the radio hosts the majority of the time. The other participant was the nurse who answered the phone before transferring the call. Her part in the prank lasted for about three seconds. Her involvement was so short, you might have missed it. But when the 46-year-old healthcare provider learned of her small but crucial role in the practical joke, she was devastated. Three days after the stunt, she killed herself, leaving behind her husband and two teenage children. If there had been any question about her motivation, it was made clear in one of the three suicide notes found at the scene. The handwritten note pulled no punches in blaming the radio station for involving her in the highly embarrassing episode. It started with two radio DJs and a lighthearted prank call to the London hospital where the pregnant Duchess Kate was recovering. But today, that hoax took a tragic and unexpected turn. This look at the dark side of practical jokes. In the end, British prosecutors decided not to press charges against the radio hosts. Prosecutors stated that while they did commit offenses under the Malicious Communications Act, the phone call, quote, however misguided, was intended as a harmless prank. But what if a prank is intended to be harmful? And what if you recruited some random people who thought they were starring in a reality show to carry it out? That's exactly what happened to a couple of people in 2017. For the two people involved, it was all fun and games until they unwittingly assassinated a world figure. When 25-year-old Siti Aisha met James at a high-end club in downtown Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, she was instantly attracted to him. She had grown up on a small farm in Indonesia, and like many young people, had moved years earlier to the country's capital, Jakarta, to find work. She wanted to be a model and an actor, and was approached one day by a man claiming to be a talent scout. He would eventually introduce her to his boss, the man calling himself James. Siti's friends and co-workers described her as kind, fun, hardworking, and attractive all qualities that would help her if she was going to make it in that industry. But her friends also said that she was naive and impressionable, qualities that James would have been looking for. The charming and handsome 30-year-old said that he worked in the advertising industry 
and that they were always looking for new talent. After several meetings, he said that he wanted to cast her in a television project his team was working on. The project, she was told, was going to be filmed in Kuala Lumpur. Siti was, of course, excited, and told her mother that she was going to Malaysia to be on TV. She said that it was going to be an ad campaign for perfume with a prank-style theme. With cameras rolling, she would run up and spray random people in the face with the fragrance to get the candid and amusing reactions. James told her they planned to start filming as early as the following month. That was in January 2017, and for the next few weeks, they practiced the stunt almost a dozen times on random people in various places. James then flew her to Cambodia, where she met his boss and performed the prank several more times. When they returned to Kuala Lumpur, they had a few more practice runs, but otherwise, Siti was deemed ready to go. A month earlier, in December 2016, and over a thousand miles away in Vietnam, 28-year-old Duan T. Huang was approached by a different scout for the same television show. Like Siti, she too was told the show would be a practical joke theme, but other details were different. For her, the prank would be to smear baby oil on people's faces. For the aspiring entertainer, an opportunity like that was too good to pass up. Just like Siti, she came from a small village and worked hard to adapt to city life when she moved away from home. This TV show could have been the big break she was waiting for. In early 2016, Duan had gained some notoriety in the press after a brief appearance as a contestant on Vietnam Pop Idol, but mostly she worked at popular clubs and bars in Vietnam's capital, Hanoi. In the month and a half leading up to the planned filming of the TV show, she and her recruiter worked on perfecting the prank. She performed it at least four times at several locations, including airport terminals and hotels in both Vietnam and Malaysia. By the time filming was due to start, she was ready as well. The two women had never met until the day of filming, and there's no evidence to suggest they ever knew what the other's role was in the prank. All they knew for certain was the big day had arrived. They had practiced the stunt over and over, and were confident they could pull it off just as they had before numerous times. On February 13, 2017, the two arrived separately at Kuala Lumpur International Airport, accompanied by their recruiters. Not long after, cameras inside the terminal show the women approach a middle-aged man from different directions. He appears to be a random person, and from his casual walk, seems to have no idea what's about to happen. One of the women came up from behind, sprayed something into a cloth, and quickly smeared it on his face before rushing away. The other approached the man from the side only a moment later, rubbing an oily substance over his eyes and mouth. She reportedly apologized to him before also disappearing in the busy terminal. Cameras captured the stunned man standing motionless for a moment, no doubt trying to figure out what had just taken place. Shortly after the incident, the man alerted a receptionist at a nearby information desk. He added that he was starting to feel disoriented. Airport medical services were called and arrived within minutes, but despite their best efforts, there was nothing they could do to help. They watched in horror as the man's health rapidly deteriorated in front of them. Just 20 minutes after the incident, 
he was dead. There was no way for them to have known at the time that what had killed him was one of the deadliest poisons on the planet. Investigators would later determine that the women had used the powerful nerve agent VX, short for Venomous Agent X. The chemical is so powerful that it's designated a weapon of mass destruction. Experts say VX is one of the most potent chemical weapons. It can kill almost instantly. VX shuts down the enzyme that regulates your nervous system. You see things like convulsions and eventually uh, you just stop breathing. It's exceptionally lethal. It's one of the most lethal um, creations that man has ever, ever come up with. Malaysian authorities have just announced they will be carrying out a sweep in that terminal later today for any remaining radioactive or chemical elements. There's a couple possibilities. One is the VX was somehow encapsulated and then placed onto a skin, or these women were inoculated with the antidote to VX before the incident. So the question to authorities became, who was this man they had killed? And who were these two women? Security was able to spot the women quickly on the video footage. Duan wearing a distinctive shirt that across the front read LOL, short for Laugh Out Loud. She would later be dubbed the LOL Assassin by the media. The women had left the airport not long after the incident, when they couldn't locate any of the crew from the television show. The supposed film crew was long gone, many hopping flights out of the country within hours of the lethal prank. However, the CCTV footage would later be used to connect the women to the men. It wasn't until Duan returned to the airport the following day that she was spotted by authorities and taken into custody. Malaysian police detained a female suspect at the Kuala Lumpur International Airport. The woman was holding a Vietnamese passport and was alone at the time of her arrest. Two days later, on February 16th, Siti Aisha was also arrested along with her boyfriend. He was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing and released. With two of the suspects identified and locked up, authorities continued searching for anyone else involved. At the same time they were searching for suspects, investigators were still trying to confirm the identity of the victim. It wasn't clear, in large part, because of the items found in the backpack he had been carrying. Inside, they found four North Korean passports, all issued to a 46-year-old named Kim Chol. But it quickly became apparent this was an alias. They also discovered over $135,000 in cash, which only added to the growing mystery. While it would take Malaysian officials almost four weeks after the killing to confirm the man's real identity, others, like the media, were doing their own research. It didn't take long before what they discovered turned a bizarre but seemingly random story into international headlines. The victim of the prank, it would turn out, was the half-brother of North Korea's current dictator, Kim Jong-un. His name was Kim Jong-nam, and he was the eldest son of North Korea's longtime ruler, Kim Jong-il. Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It was a killing that shocked the world of the man who might have been North Korea's leader. This morning, details in that saying. bizarre assassination of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's half-brother, which played out, as you can see on surveillance cameras. Estranged older half-brother of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. He would ultimately fall out of favor with his father, 
paving the way for Kim Jong-un to take control of the country when their father died in 2011. Estranged from his brother, Kim Jong-nam lived with his wife and children in Macau and was headed home after spending a week alone at a Malaysian resort. He told friends on more than one occasion that he feared for his life, but by all accounts, lived a carefree lifestyle. He had a reputation for enjoying traveling, gambling, and lots of drinking. The heavily tattooed jet setter was also the only member of the Kim family to address the media outside of Korea. He went on record many times promoting reform in his home country, including the idea of introducing open markets. Concepts that were in total contrast to his family's ruling philosophy. It had also been reported that, politically, China preferred Kim Jong-nam over his brother. The idea that the Chinese Communist Party could one day decide to force Kim Jong-un from power and replace him with his older brother was unacceptable to the dictator. It's widely speculated that these are the main reasons that prompted the assassination. The fun-loving occasional businessman had admitted to friends that he had probably painted a target on his head by speaking out. There's another theory that he was killed because of the national embarrassment he had personally caused North Korea back in May 2001. In a strange incident, the one-time potential heir was arrested when he tried to enter Japan using a forged passport. The false document claimed that he was from the Dominican Republic and that he went by a Chinese name. When Japanese authorities eventually deported him, King Jong-nam said that he just wanted to go to Disneyland Tokyo. The incident was reportedly so humiliating to his father, Kim Jong-il, that an upcoming official visit to China was cancelled. Others have theorized that Kim Jong-nam was killed because he was a CIA operative, which they say explains the large amount of cash found in his backpack at the time of his death. Whatever the reasons may have been, South Korean intelligence believes that Kim Jong-un placed a standing kill order on his brother as early as 2011, soon after he took power. There were a couple of assassination attempts over the years, but it was a supposed practical joke that finally worked. The trial of the two women began in October 2017. Eight months ago, these two women smeared poison on a man they didn't know. At issue, did they know what they were doing? If convicted, the two women may pay with their lives. Duan denies being part of a hit squad, always saying she believed it was a harmless TV prank. The two accused arrived at the suburban court to face charges of first-degree murder, knowing they faced the death penalty if convicted. They and their lawyers maintained they were duped into committing the killing, believing they were taking part in a prank for a reality TV show. The two women have pleaded not guilty to murder. American and South Korean officials have said they believe North Korea was behind the killing. Four North Korean men, including the man who called himself James, were also charged, but they had all fled to Korea after the murder and have never been apprehended. The trial lasted until 2019, with both women facing the death penalty for their involvement in what was widely being called a political assassination. But in March of 2019, the murder charges were dropped, first against Siti, and then, a few weeks later, against Duan. 
The judge decided that the evidence was not sufficient enough to prove that the women were aware of the murder plot when they were recruited or acted it out. The judge agreed with the defense lawyers that both were unwitting participants. The Indonesian woman accused of killing North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's half-brother Kim Jong-nam has been released today after the Malaysian court dropped the murder charges. City Aisha was released, but the decision came as a shock to many, even the suspect herself. Accused of murder, Duan Hong will now be freed next month. North Korea has never admitted to orchestrating the assassination of Kim Jong-nam. The strange plot to recruit unsuspecting people to carry it out as a practical joke will likely also remain a state secret. So keep in mind if you're ever approached to be in a prank, that it's all fun and games until you unknowingly assassinate a world figure. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments? Questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks for listening and for all of your amazing reviews and ratings. BiggerPockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.